Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. In this episode, I talked with Charlie Stevenson from Integrated Eco Strategy about sustainable materials and healthy materials. He's been looking at this for a decade or more. Uh, healthy materials in buildings, and I, I really learned a lot. This is something that I am uh, finding that I'm more and more interested in. Uh, we talked for a long time, quite a long time, so long that we had to edit it down and break this up into a couple episodes, but uh, I'd learned tons. I hope you get something from it too. Uh, in this episode, for the first 10 or 15 minutes, we talked about uh, mostly about the Living Building Challenge, which is a program that I'll let Charlie describe in more detail, but Healthy Materials is a big piece of the program. Uh, And then we talk about how to find out information about materials, what databases are out there, how to source sustainable materials, what to ask manufacturers, uh, who who is keeping track of all this info. And listening back to the episode, actually, I, I realized we threw out a few abbreviations that I thought maybe would be good to define up front. HPD is a health product declaration. ILFI, International Living Future Institute, which is in charge of the Living Building Challenge program. And SDSs or MSDSs, uh, safety data sheets or material safety data sheets. I thought those might be helpful if you are not familiar with those. But here is part one, my interview with Charlie Stevenson. Well, first of all, thank you for being here. It's uh, this is an important topic: healthy materials, sustainable materials. And I know you are very involved with Living Building Challenge projects. Yes, correct. We started our first Living Building Challenge project in early 2011, uh, and that seems like a long time ago. Yeah. Right. And I, I listened to, actually, you were mentioned, I listened to uh, the Green Architects Lounge podcast, and they talked about the Living Building Challenge project or two. And they mentioned you, and they mentioned that the materials pedal, the materials piece, is the toughest. Do you hear that a lot? Is that? It's, so I would put it this way. It's the, it's the one, the, so the materials pedal has, is the biggest surprise among the challenging pedals. So, you know, in Living Building Challenge, there are, there are seven pedals. Three of them are highlighted as particularly challenging, energy, water, and materials. The energy pedal requires net zero, or in some cases, net positive energy. And I think there are lots of rules of thumb that have evolved over the, over the years. And project teams can look to a pretty substantial um, set of case studies and understand, you know, generally things are converging toward heat pumps and triple pane windows and, uh, you know, certain levels of, of air infiltration, etc. And in so doing, they can pretty reliably get to net zero energy. The water pedal is a 
different kind of a challenge uh, simply because it's a regulatory challenge and an operations challenge. Uh, you know, the, the requirement that a project produce and treat all of its own water on site uh, from, by and large, from rainwater. There, there's a way to do it with, with you know, if you're outside of a city, you can do it with groundwater and a, and a pretty standard septic system. Uh, but in, in places where there's municipal water and municipal sewer, convincing first a client and then later uh, a regulator that it's a good idea not to use that system water uh, is an effort. Uh, so I think the, the water pedal will remain a challenge for the, the reason you're replacing, you know, small sections of pipe with technical systems that need to be designed well and then really relying upon rainwater, other precipitation, uh, and and then sort of continuous operation issues. Uh, and again, there's 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 practice there and there are precedents there. That's a, a bigger lift in terms of scope add uh, than net zero energy is at this point or net positive energy is at this point. Yeah, that also makes sense. It's it's a bigger, it seems like a bigger, more non-traditional systems and approaches. Right. At the, at the single family level, it can be very straightforward. I mean, there are a lot of LBC projects in suburban or rural areas where it looks a lot like a conventional drilled well and a conventional septic system. And that meets okay. the, the intent of the living building challenge, presuming that there's enough rainfall on site to demonstrate aquifer recharge. The materials pedal, on the other hand, sounds simple in principle. Avoid carcinogens and endocrine disruptors and bioaccumulative toxins when possible. That unpacks to be a, a task that touches 100% of products, or very nearly 100% of products that go into is that, a is project. Is that it? Did you just, is that, is that like the whole requirement of the pedal that you, in that one phrase? That's the, that's the red list portion of the pedal. So, okay. so the pedal in Living Building Challenge, pedal, a, a pedal is the sum of one or more imperatives. So the energy pedal is a sim single imperative, uh, provide 105% of annual energy needs from on-site renewables without combustion. That's not verbatim, okay. but, but it, it boils down to that. The materials pedal has a couple of different facets. One of them is the requirement I just mentioned to, to avoid so-called red list chemicals. These are chemicals of concern, about 800 specific chemical, chemical abstract service numbers um, on the order of 25 chemical families of concern. Um, so that's one piece. Another piece is net positive waste. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not reciting these in order. Uh, that imperative looks at really four phases of the project. It looks at the design phase. Is it designed to minimize waste? It looks at the construction phase. Are, are resources brought to the site uh, 
repurposed and salvaged and diverted from either landfill or incineration to the highest extent possible. Um, the third is the operations phase, asking the question of um, sort of responsible resource stewardship. You know, that's on-site recycling, that's composting, that's sort of making sure that as the building is used, it's not contributing to a waste stream. Uh, and then finally, end of service, you know, 50, 100, 200 years down the road, what care has been given to in the, in the design and construction phase to ensure that the, the, the materials aren't destined for landfill or incineration uh, down the road. So some of that's designed for disassembly. Some of that is flexible structures so that if, if a building, you know, it's, it's set up to be adapted for future use rather than demolished and replaced. So that's a that's another piece of the materials pedal. So the 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 I guess the health piece, the healthy materials piece, is is the red list as you mentioned. But then there are the there are the three others. Uh, um, and then there's in, um, embodied carbon. Oh, there's one more. Yep. Uh, uh, I was wondering. I was going to ask you about that. I thought you said that was the last one. Okay. Oh no no. Um, I've, right. I've I've learned not to. I've learned not to number my lists before I start talking because I'm always wrong when I do that. <laughs> um, no, embodied carbon at this at this point requires project teams to, you know, using uh, Tally within Revit or using um, the Athena tools um, to calculate embodied carbon for the project and its renewable energy system and then purchase a one-time carbon offset at the at the start of the project effectively to pay back the carbon debt so that that embodied carbon is covered and then the operational carbon is covered by the on-site renewable system so that uh, the project truly is uh, carbon neutral in construction and operation and that includes extraction and processing and shipping that piece of the pedal? It, it does using using library. So we're not studying, yeah. you know, how many trucks come to a project on a given right. day or how many hours are put on an excavator. Uh, that's all covered in tons of concrete and square feet of drywall and basically looking yep. at, you know, in the, in the simplest terms, looking at the assemblies and then using industry standards to assign embodied carbon impacts. Uh, to the, the volumes of, of each assembly type. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, and I mean, there's a lot to it. I mean, there's, and, and this is, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the most rigorous uh, formal program looking at materials, sustainable materials. It, yes? It's the most rigorous one I know of. I, I'm imagining okay. there's something out there. I mean, the way I, the way I see Living Building Challenge having evolved, it's, you know, it's, it certainly wouldn't be possible without USGBC and LEED. The, you know, if we accept that LEED is an evolutionary process, and it you know, certainly has evolved, you know, it continues to evolve, uh, and, and in each, in each iteration, LEED gets more stringent with the idea that it's moving toward sustainability. It's moving, you know, over time, 
years, decades, it moves to a place of positive impact, that no harm is allowed to be caused by a lead project. Uh, so certainly there are lead projects that are net zero energy, for instance, but there's no requirement. So the, the notion in LBC is to say, what's the logical extension? What would true sustainability or regenerative design look like? It wouldn't necessarily be that we stop at a project that's 30% better than code energy use or 50% better than code right. energy use. Let's take that to the place that looks truly sustainable or looks future-proof, and that would be net zero energy. So effectively, in each sector of green building consideration, we, we follow that evolutionary curve to the point where it looks neutral or positive, and that's the starting place for the living building challenge. Makes sense. It, it, going kind of going all the way, and and I personally have been involved very only tangentially in a few living building challenge projects. I know others in our office have been much more deeply involved, but it's it's uh, it's ambitious. It really is, and it's off putting. I think I think many of the pedals can be off putting. The materials one maybe maybe more than the others. I, so yeah, I mean, I, I've, I, someone, a friend, Bruce Coldham described it as a, as a Trojan horse. It seems really straightforward and then you welcome it in and it starts to unpack inside the gates of a project. <laughs> and, and it's, you, 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 it's you, a nice you, metaphor. You've, you've committed to a lot and you might not, you know, particularly in the early days, you might not have realized quite how much you committed to. But this is, and this is what we just discussed talking about. Perhaps the the red list and LBC. I think you use the phrase uh, wading into LBC, not diving into LBC. There are some less heavy list lifts that can make a big impact to indoor health, to overall carbon, embodied carbon of projects, and I think that. Some more accessible pieces might be, um, well, more accessible. Right. So I think that's that's one thing I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about. Another piece is that the market has evolved a tremendous amount since the advent of LBC. So you know the way projects work, most have an LBC projects in particular. They may have a three year, five year life cycle. So what's begun. It's you know the stories that current projects are telling are quite different than the projects that, or the, the stories told by projects five and ten years ago. I, I you know back in two thousand eleven and two thousand twelve, we were a smaller operation and there were there were two of us and we could hear one another, you know, in an open office and it it generally took five or ten minutes on the phone to describe to a manufacturer or. You know, an engineer, product engineer at a manufacturing firm, just what the living building challenge was. So, if, if we were on a research task, we had to plan on stopping and giving background. It is no longer the case that we need, or it's very seldom, I should say, the case that we call a manufacturer and have to explain LBC. So, just nice. that fact alone means that the, you know, the effort required by a particular project team is, is, vastly reduced because there's there's familiarity and, and i think 
so, so that's one thing I would want to make very clear is that while it remains a challenge, a lot of the war stories from early projects are now somewhat up, outdated in the sense that uh, um, yeah, it, it, it has gotten significantly easier. And an, Excellent. another piece of that is that unlike, say, the water pedal, where it's a new regulatory lift for each new project, materials are, can be fairly consistent from project to project. So once a single project team has determined a good drywall or uh, you know, an appropriate non-flat interior latex wall paint, that is a really good starting place, if not a good solution for subsequent project teams. So because information can be shared and because there's the, the possibility of reuse of compliance information from project to project, the, the community of practitioners can facilitate future materials project compliance paths for all subsequent projects. So there's that, that idea of data reuse and information sharing is, is, I would say, much more significant in the materials battle than it is in others. And you manage a database. I, the Red to Green database, I believe, is, is, is your product that you have kind of compiled over the years? Is that? That's true, yes. Accurate? So I think almost all LBC project teams begin with a spreadsheet. So the International Living Future Institute has a template spreadsheet that's effectively the reporting form that, that needs to be submitted for audit at the end of the project. So everyone begins okay. there. There's certain information that gets tracked, and it's a subset of all of the information that's collected over the course of researching a, a product for LBC compliance. So uh, the, the, the quick story of Red to Green is that we had our first living building challenge project at Williams College, and then about two years later, signed on to do one at Hampshire College, just about 40 miles away. We thought it would be really easy because we had all these answers from the first project. Um, and lo and behold, we'd fought, forgotten a lot of what we'd learned because we didn't write yeah. it all down. And then we, we started our third project, the Hitchcock Center, also on the Hampshire College campus. And those two projects had the same construction team and were overlapping in design and construction. Um, there again, we had... We, we ran into the limitations of a spreadsheet. First of all, it didn't contain all the information that we'd learned. And then on top of that, there weren't enough dimensions in the spreadsheet to keep track of what was consistent from project to project and what had changed from project to project. So we started a database development process to take advantage of the many dimensions that a database allows. And over time, that's evolved to be a a software platform that's focused on LBC materials compliance that we call Red to Green. Because the the Red List, I I hear quite a few people mention the Red List, but the Red List is not a list of products. It's a list of chemicals that are not allowed in any products that you use in an LBC building. That's, is that accurate? That's correct. So the Red List okay. is, you could say, worst-in-class chemicals. 
So you're familiar with some of them, asbestos, lead. You know others by name, uh, BPA or um, PFAS. Even something like BPA isn't a single chemical. That's a chemical family. So I I won't really know the numbers off the top of my head, but there are dozens of BPAs. There are polycarbonate BPAs and so forth and so on. So we sort of start with the idea that we're going to avoid BPA and then need to delve much deeper to, to find specific chemical compounds revealed by manufacturers, which may or may not be BPA. So there's a lookup process that we do uh, when, when screening a product. Gotcha. And, and, and that... Um so, so is is red to green kind of basically all all the all the products in that database are do not contain any red list chemicals. It's, is that accurate? It's not quite so simple. <laughs> okay. uh, so, um, how will I put it? Um, so, we've looked at something over nine thousand products, and we sort them into categories. There are a couple of different ways of sorting. Uh, sometimes we know all that we need to know about a product to make a determination, and other times we don't. It's still the case that not all manufacturers will reveal 100% or anything approaching 100% of the chemicals in their products. Right. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for that, some valid, some arguably less valid. Uh, sometimes they just don't know. So. <laughs> I'm sitting in a chair which has, you know, I'd guess 150 parts. You know, there are the arms and there are the screws that hold on the arms and there are the little plastic levers that let me adjust the arms. Uh, it's quite possible that each one of those comes from one different sub-supplier. And it's also possible that like a, a, a screw that has a black coating might involve two or three suppliers. So just the, the, right. the act of figuring out what's in a chair sounds straightforward. It's non-trivial. Yep. And then, to, to, so sometimes it's just a data acquisition problem and we're totally sympathetic when manufacturers face that. Other times, we're also sympathetic, but we, we're, when there's a concern about proprietary information. Uh, that's to say a, a team has, you know, a company has invested significant resources in figuring out how best to make a whatever, a flexible coating that could uh, go on a, you know, the arm of a chair in this example. And they, they don't want to reveal how they made that because understandably if they, if they gave the chemical recipe, someone else would have a shortcut to replicate their high-performing chair arm coating. Yep, yep. The, the, the trick in all of this is that, you know, as a, as a consumer or as a designer that's, that's recommending products to consumers, we, we, we want to begin from a place of information that allows us to make informed decisions. So... It's very different to say, you know, in, in the case, if we switch to food as an example, um, you know, the difference between trust me, it's organic, and I have a third party 
seal from the Oregon Tilth saying that this fruit bar was uh, produced organically. Uh, and it contains only fruit as opposed to, you know, preservatives or other uh, synthetic chemicals. So, you know, I think I take materials health to be a two-step process initially. First, obtaining disclosure, uh, so that information sharing, and then second, a screening process to understand and judge for, for myself using sort of established rules of health and potential health impact uh, to understand if a, if a product screens positively or negatively against those lists of chemicals of concern. Yeah, okay. And so where's the best place for, I mean, looking for HPDs, uh, which stands for? Health Product Declarations. Health. Okay. So it is still early days for getting this information. And okay. there isn't a, uh, without, there isn't a standard standard. So there are multiple standards for ingredient disclosures, all of which are good and maybe none of which are perfect. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's very confusing. There's all kinds of different sustainable product certifications. It's a little alphabet soup that I for, don't know exactly what to make of them all personally. Right, well, and, and I wouldn't claim that I know what to do with them either. I think that, you know the way we approach it, and we talk about wading into this, you know, potentially overwhelming pool. Um, just pick a couple of criteria that seem to make sense. So, you know, on the simplest okay. level, is it good to know what's in a product? Better that is yes. than not knowing. <laughs> so, yes. Um, and then, and then it doesn't need to be one hundred percent disclosure. Is it too good to know? something rather than nothing, sure. So if you look at a safety data sheet, for instance, um, that does not reveal 100% of material ingredients, uh, but it will, it will flag certain chemicals that are known bad actors. Uh, so, so that's a- Sometimes. Sometimes. Well, that's to say there are there are regulatory requirements to reveal certain things. Now, there are other bad actors that aren't subject to regulatory requirements. Or, you know, okay. So um, if a product contains formaldehyde, for instance, it will show on the SDS. Gotcha. If it contains BPA, it may or may not show on the SDS. Someone could choose to put it okay. on the SDS, but they're not required to put it on the SDS. So that's a, that's a good first screen because a product, many products are required to have them. So if anything that's, any chemical constituent that's a proven carcinogen will be revealed through the safety data sheet. Good. If we move on to something like a health product declaration, um, that's a voluntary standard. It's fantastic because it is a standard. Uh, so there is an increasing level of consistency from manufacturer to manufacturer. It's good that it's an evolving standard. So, you know, the, the uh, Health Product Declaration Collaborative does tremendous work in industry um, 
helping manufacturers understand the benefits that accrue from disclosure. And then over time, that standard evolves, you know, moving toward higher levels of disclosure, which is to say, um, you know, moving from, say, a thousand parts per million as the threshold for disclosure uh, to a hundred parts per million as the threshold for disclosure. So there's, you know, fewer places for chemicals of concern to hide as you move toward a more stringent um, screen uh, for ingredient disclosure. Uh, cool. So uh, all of these, all of these resources are are tremendous. What they do is they they bring information out into the light for review and reflection by project teams. Yeah. So as we reach higher and higher levels of ingredient disclosure, we now get to the next question. Great, I know what's in this product. Should I use it? And that's, that is a, it's an entirely different question because um, that we presume some knowledge about chemicals of concern uh, in order to answer, you know, move from the factual question to the, the, the guiding question. Uh, and, and then again, there are lots of, there are lots of tools. There are, um, well, something like the red list gives us a way to ask the binary question. Does this product have a chemical that someone else has said uh, I should avoid. Uh, so in the case of formaldehyde, it's a carcinogen. I, I, I understand intuitively uh, that given a choice, I wouldn't use that uh, in a building. Yeah, it, I, I ran across something. Uh, I ran across an article that was a pretty general article or paper that advised avoiding mastic for duct sealing. Use tape instead of mastic for duct sealing because mastics contain many chemicals of concern. And they, did, they were talking about just generally. And so this kind of floored me because mastics are so much better at duct sealing than tapes usually that I was, <laughs> I was a little concerned. So I, I went through, I looked up a few SDSs from uh, some mastics that I had used that I knew about. And you know the, the, the compounds listed on the SDSs accounted for something like 17% of the volume or the weight of the product. So I was like, oh man. And then so I dug a little more, tried to find some mastics with duct mastic with uh, product declarations, HPDs. Still looking, did not find any. So it's uh, it's 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 frustrating because <laughs> you know, right? Well, it, I mean, it, it gets to be this, you know, the the, the how will I put it? You can't unthink these thoughts. Um, you know, we wouldn't right, we wouldn't right. accept, uh, you know food that we ate every day, well, we might change our diet if, we, if, if someone said to us, what you have for breakfast every day, I can only tell you 17% of what's in it. And that yeah. <laughs> leads to that question, well, what's the, what's the other 80% or 83%? And, and, if, and if someone were unwilling to tell you, you might go looking for a different breakfast. Yep. And Absolutely. and often though you know it's it's possible that the other eighty three percent is inert, but wouldn't you feel more comfortable if you knew that? Absolutely. And um, 
it, and it gets to a it gets to a really good point, Rob. That's that um, one of the biggest threats. That's too strong a word. What a, a consideration in design is to avoid single variable optimization. So yeah, it yeah. is absolutely true that a mastic produces, um, you know, um, duct leakage at you know with with a higher effectiveness rate. That's the wrong word, and yeah, lower duct lower duct yeah. leakage at a at a at a known installed cost. Right. So, um, if 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 you if you if you ask the question, what's the most cost effective way to reduce duct leakage? The answer is mastic. If you ask the question, what's the what's the most effective way to deliver uncontaminated air to building occupants? You're introducing a you're introducing a new variable in the discussion, and that's uncontaminated. And your leakage reduction is great. If it comes at the expense of a contaminant load, uh, it may be less great. And now, now you know what the optimal solution focused on leakage alone might be mastic. We may we may be willing to accept a, a higher leakage rate in exchange for a reduction. In, in chemical load, uh, and now we're, we're really asking a different question. Or somebody can step up and make a mastic without any red list chemicals. Exactly. Well, and that's really you know the, the the entire premise of the living building challenge is precisely that. No one stepped up and delivered a a red list free. Oh, I don't know this. I could look it up. Uh, I don't, if if someone hasn't delivered a mastic a mastic that's free of red list chemicals, it's probably because no one has asked them to yet. So gotcha. what what we end up doing as practitioners in this realm is just asking the question: Hey, what's in your product? I'd really prefer a mastic that contains no red list chemicals. And that that does a couple of things. First of all, it alerts the manufacturers that there's an interest, you know, that there's a market here for uh, a red list free product. Um, it alerts them to something that they can act upon. So it's not just that I want a healthy product, it's that it's that I want a product that doesn't contain these 20, anything in these 25 chemical families. Some of them are going to be easy. Yeah, we don't put asbestos in our um, mastic. <laughs> Though it might be legal, um, there, there we don't put lead, um, but there, there may be some plasticizers uh, that we'd have to look at and come to a better understanding internally, speaking as the mastic manufacturer, to know, do we have it now and can we reformulate without? Um, and to a, to a topic you touched on a little bit ago, we, there may not be a perfect mastic. And then a design team is left with the question, are they better off with a leaky duct or a, a duct that, that's, that uses mastic to achieve a certain level of sealing? And that decision is left to the design team. So we don't, I don't think in terms of absolutes, but rather think in terms of the best that we can do for a particular design problem. So yeah. um, 
you know, when, we've, when we finished an LBC project, as much as we'd love to say it's red list free, really what we're saying is that use of red list compounds has been minimized. So we're using them in known places for known purposes. So an example of that is a fire alarm. We have not found a red list free fire alarm enunciator. Uh, ah. But we, we believe there's very good reason to have fire alarms in buildings. So, <laughs> and code officials agree. So, yeah, right. um, so what we'll do in that case is we'll, we'll advocate to the manufacturer and say, you know, we have this, we have this red box. You didn't tell us what the, what the coding was on that box. And, 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 you know, we can deduce that it contains lead. That's fine. We, you know, we accept that this is the state of the market for now. And, and, and to have a safe building, we want a fire alarm system. And to have a fire alarm system, we, we accept uh, these shortcomings in current disclosure and compliance. Please know that when you or one of your peers has a product that does better than this from a chemical perspective, we'll, we'll shift our purchasing there. So yep. we're engaged Good. with the market as it exists, but we're, we're telegraphing what we want the market to be in the future in an effort to tip the market uh, toward optimization. And the idea there really is that living building challenge teams individually may or may not have a lot of power, but collectively they define the terms, red list, red list free, uh, and they, they, they commit in the abstract toward buying better products in the future. So whoever's making the case for better paints or better coatings or better what have you can be accumulating this information to say, boy, if you know, we'd win market share if only we had a red list free solution in this particular building product sector. Makes sense. And and we've seen the market change in, in this way and in other in other aspects. I our uh, our accessibility group I know has has had issues with high tech windows and doors, you know, not not being able to uh, not having the proper clearance to get into in and out of buildings mm-hmm. and working with manufacturers to get yeah, get get products that satisfy everybody. Uh, and if there's big enough demand, it's worth their while. Right. Well, and another, uh, so, so absolutely, we internally track what we call success stories, which are these breakthroughs with manufacturers. Um, and, you know, many go to great lengths and we appreciate, you know, their, uh, their knowledge of their products, their knowledge of the manufacturing process. And, uh, you know, they alone can pinpoint the shortcomings and then work within their supply chain and work to innovate in ways that uh, addresses these concerns and, and moves either in large steps or incrementally toward um, better products, where in this case, better is holding the line on all of the other performance criteria, durability, what have you, um, and increasing uh, awareness of and uh, awareness of health impacts and really making efforts to reduce those. Yeah, if anybody knows of a good mastic with HPD, let me know. Um, I'd be very keen I, to so, <laughs> find one. So that's that's effectively uh, 
you'd hear the clacking. I won't look it up now, but I'll, I'll, I'll get you that answer because effectively what we do <laughs> is we're just cataloging what we find. So when I go back to those okay. 9,000 products, you know, some we have full disclosure, some we don't. You know, in every case, if we're, we're trying to ratchet toward fuller disclosure. And then certain products are red list free, certain products are red list compliant, certain products are red list unknown, and certain products are red list non-compliant. So that okay. gradation, red list free, I think is obvious. Red list compliant, you know, there are what ILFI calls temporary exceptions. So exterior sheathing, um, so plywood sheathing, um, it needs to be weatherproof for a few months. And no one has yet come up with a resin that lets a you know, CDX plywood weather for a few months without delaminating, without using phenol formaldehyde. So if we want buildings to be durable, they have to stand up through the construction process and they need to tolerate a certain amount of moisture. So the chemistry, the green chemistry isn't there to give us exterior grade plywoods uh, without phenol formaldehyde. So we'd, we'd love one, but for right now we have permission and we give project, ILFI has given us permission to use that chemical of concern in this limited application until the market has transformed. All right. So explicit, I mean, that's not, that's an explicit, uh, quote, exception for now, not, not something design teams have to judge, but right. ILFI themselves has, has given that permission. That. Right. So there's a whole, uh, you know, there are dozens of exceptions um, that, that reflect temporary market limitations. Uh, so, okay. and so, so part of what we're doing is we're, we're attaching that exception to a particular product so that the next project team that comes along can see it's okay to use this. There's nothing better than this product in this particular market segment for the time being. And then, you know, further down the list are the products about which we've not gotten enough information to make a judgment. Um, and there's something that's, that's called a due diligence case. So if we reach out within the bounds of a particular project to three manufacturers, none of whom will answer our questions, and we know of nothing else that can be used to meet the project's requirements, we can go ahead and use one of those products of uncertain uh, compliance because the, the, the work can't stop either in design or construction uh, right. to wait for the market to transform. Yeah, And that's equally true for non-compliant products. So, uh, you know, back to the fire alarm, they contain lead. We wish they didn't contain lead, um, but we, we need them. So, so um, you know, as we look at the library, it's about a third products that are compliant, a third products that are unknown, and a third products that are non-compliant. And where it gets interesting is when you have a, a particular design need or performance need that can be met either by a compliant product or a non-compliant product. Now you really feel yourself pushing the market or moving the market to say, no, we're not going to buy this thing that is non-compliant. We're going to favor this thing that's compliant. Yeah, absolutely. And I think back to your Mastic example, you know, this is where 
you know, it, it, it's an interesting process for designers to ask what products are necessary in a building. Is it the case that mastics are necessary? Maybe, or there may right. be a yeah. creative solution that says we can achieve an adequate level of duct sealing without mastic. And now we're asking yep. the question, well, what would replace mastic to achieve the, the desired performance level? Uh, Absolutely. So a lot of what we end up doing is you know, we, we feel most impactful at the beginning of design where we're able to broaden the question, you know, to steer away from, say, uh, spray foam solutions into bat or loose fill solutions. Uh, because, you know, these are places where you can make a huge step away from chemicals of concern. You can also make a huge step away from embodied carbon. Uh, and, right. and and now, you know, we're, we're not, we're focusing on the, on the performance in the abstract rather than uh, the particular performance characteristics of, 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 a, of a material. Uh, so it may be there's a different air barrier solution. It may be that there's a whole different wall assembly. Um, but but if, if with openness in the early days, you can often move toward products that meet multiple, uh, that are optimized in multiple criteria. That'll do it for part one of my interview with Charlie. Next time we'll talk about where to start with healthy products or sustainable products. If you're not going to go whole hog with Living Building Challenge, where does it make sense to start spending effort to look at healthy materials in buildings? I also wanted to mention Charlie's website, materiallybetter.com. There's links to that on our show notes, but I wanted to give, uh, give you a shout out for that website too. Thanks, and I hope you tune in next week. Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. For more information about the topics discussed today, visit www.swinter.com slash podcast and check out the episode show notes. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We provide energy, green building, and accessibility consulting services to improve the built environment. Our professionals have led the way since 1972 in the development of best practices to achieve high-performance buildings. Our production team for today's episode includes Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and myself, Heather Breslin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.